From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, well, welcome to Wharton Moneyball, a special virtual edition with the four hosts scattered in different corners of the United States. We want to get together for the first time in a few weeks and see if we can pull this show off virtually. Delighted to have the chance. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew. Adi Weiner, looking like he's on a porch, I suspect, um, on the main line in Philadelphia. Shane Jensen, I believe in Center City, Philadelphia. And Eric at home, again, mainlining it there in Philadelphia. I'm out here in the boonies of Central Texas. Morning, guys. Or rather, afternoon, fellas. Good afternoon, indeed. Hey, how's it going? We've done some afternoon shows before, but usually from some, you know, sporting event. This is the first time from a non-sporting event. Lots of things unusual these days. We're going to give this thing a whirl virtually. If it works out, we may make this a regular thing. Depending on how the world shakes out, we may be doing more of these virtually than in person for a little while. So let's see how it goes. Audience, um, you guys, we're always up for your suggestions. And today, we're going to do about an hour. Theology, see what my colleagues have been looking at as they've tried to make sense of the world. In the second half, we'll go a little more sports-centric, though you can't talk about sports these days very easily anyway without also talking about the coronavirus. So we've got that ahead of us. Gentlemen, I am curious, as you've, as you've tried to make sense of the world over the last few weeks, we're academics, we're scientists, we tend to kind of lean that way. There's a lot of different resources out there. What do, what do you make of it, and on what sources have you drawn in, in making sense of things? Well, I don't want I've done, I've actually, being a, a bit of, a, of an obsessive and having a hard time thinking about much other than the coronavirus and its ramifications. I've actually gone out into the, the raw data and, and done a lot of my own sort of raw data analysis. That's hard because the data is of questionable value. Um, so you don't know what you're getting. So um, one thing you can go and you can get, you can get essentially infections or reported infections or positive cases by county, more or less. Um, I've, I've done and looked at it by, by state, by country. You can get deaths. They're starting to release things like hospitalizations and ICU um, uh, visits and things like that, which are, I think will ultimately be more informative. But what I've been trying to track, and I've been spending the last you know week or so looking at it almost on a daily basis, to see if there's evidence of the, the rates of change, uh, the growth rates slowing down. That's what I've been doing. And, uh, and people have been putting up these exponential curves from which you'll never be able to detect a change in the rate of change of an exponential by looking at the data on the raw scale. So I are, are you mostly modeling like infections? Because I mean, in my own practice, my, my own practice over the last two or three weeks has been basically to ignore almost everything except for deaths. Right. right? So the like problem to with only deaths, model deaths yeah. as like the closest thing to an unambiguous kind of measure that's comparable well, across different not, places. I'm, let me, let's start with that. Cause Shane, you know, I've been looking at that data as well. The concern I have about it, I would do it the same way. I would use the death data and then I would probably invert based on what we know about the ratio of the death rate to the infection rate. But the problem is, is that, you know, let's imagine someone dies from, you know, lung failure or something, their, their lungs fail, but it wasn't, and they got a false negative on the coronavirus test. They wouldn't be someone that would appear in the death data. The problem, this is one of those unique situations in my opinion, where there's problems with the infection rate data, there's a problem with the hospitalization rate data, there's a problem with the ICU data, there's a problem with the death rate data, and at some point, I mean, I'm interested to hear what Adi's done as well, you're going to have to make some assumptions maybe about which one's the cleanest and, which, and how you can make the translation or inversion between one and the other. Worse, Eric, is that the data is um, of different reliability depending on the location. So one of the things that I've tracked is the rates of positive tests across states. So in New York, it's absurd. Uh, the rates of positive tests are like 60, 70%, meaning the only body getting tests are people who are like practically dying of what is obviously COVID-19. Right. That's New York. And that's changed over time. Pennsylvania, and I know this from frontline doctors, and particularly our area, their rates of positive tests have hovered almost constantly at 10% for the last three weeks. And that's because testing, we're not that overloaded with cases. They have, we have implemented, we have some first-rate hospitals, particularly in our area. It's, it's possible to drive in. And in fact, I, last time I, was, I went into my office, I drove by Pennsylvania Hospital, and not Pennsylvania Hospital, Presbyterian Hospital, and they had a big tent right outside, and you could just walk in and get tested. You had to have criterion, but you could get, and which they've changed. So, 
so in Pennsylvania, I think the data on infections is actually somewhat reliable. The data in New York City, not so reliable. But so the Adi, scale just factor, to be clear, just yeah. to be clear for our listeners here on uh, Wharton Moneyball, what specific conditional probability are you stating? Because a lot of people are confused about, so when you say 10%, 60%, specifically, are you referring to given somebody has the disease, what's the probability they're being tested and it shows up positive? Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm essentially looking at the frequency, which would be the conditional probability of you gotten tested that you actually have the disease. And in New York City, that's extremely high. So conditionally on being tested, you have, it's very likely you have disease. Of course, there are individual circumstances which make, make that very different. So when a basketball player gets tested, they probably don't have the disease. They're being tested because they're high pro profile people that see a lot of people. If you're a healthcare worker, your probability is also lower. If you're an elderly person in a nursing home who's, who's can't breathe, you almost certainly have the disease. So the changes by, by personal matter. But so I'm looking at the conditional probability of being positive given that you're tested. And in Pennsylvania, that is covered around 10%. In other states, it's very, very, very different. And all this data is out there. COVIDtracking.com has it and you can see it and you can see how that changes. Our friend, John Hermsmeyer, uh, Josh has been doing this. He's been actually reporting on negative positive. Well, it must be so difficult to kind of make the translation into that into something like a, a growth rate or a spread rate which is what we want given just how different it, I, it sounds almost impossible to translate that into an infection well, rate given it, how it is if, if that rate is constant if, so in other words if the what if the process of getting tested is held constant over time then you can look at rates of change and the rates of change and know what you're dealing with. We yeah, don't know right. the constant, but we can see the rates of change. So that's been the project that I've looked at. Can we see the rate of change of the rate of change and measure that? And the reason why I don't want to look at deaths is that's a week and a half out. If I really want to see the effect of isolation and self-quarantine, you want to be able to look at it in infections. And I have some results I can report. Okay. So uh, we want to hear about the results, but I just want to point out that, you know, there's not a, no one knows the right way to do this. Every one of these things has a, not everyone, but everything's got a flaw. Some of them have virtues and we're, every model's, every model's challenged in some way. So Adi, you just pointed it out. I mean, Shane, for example, is talking about this work from desks and back up and Eric as well. And that's what these guys over at the University of Washington, IHME, the um, Institute of Health Metrics, that's a Gates funded outfit. A lot of folks paying attention to their models. That was their whole idea. So we're, we're, we can't trust the reports of infections and they vary so much. We're going to work from desk back. But as Adi says, then you've got this lagged indicator and, and it may be the most reliable. We don't know, but it's lagged. This just strikes me as a situation where we need lots of people modeling. We need lots of different approaches. We need people not being self-righteous about this is the right model. All of them are flawed. Adi. Yeah. So the thing that, that, that there are essentially broadly two, two approaches. One is completely data-driven. Just try to see what you can from looking at the data you have. And then there's the traditional approach was equation-oriented. We know a lot about epidemiology. We know how, how viruses transfer. In fact, we've applied it broadly. I mean, Eric, you've written about it in marketing. And there are people who have written about it in other areas. So epidemiological models exist. They're a series of a subject of stochastic processes. We know the equation models. You can use them. And and our own Penn Center for, for, for modeling of this data is using equations. And they have parameters, and then they allow you sliders to change those parameters. But my criticism of those models is that the reality of the world doesn't actually fit any of those processes. Why? Because the transfer rate is constantly changing. Are we, in, we impose self-quarantine methods, which are contingent on age, and age is contingent on your probability of getting sick and dying, and all those things make complexity enormous. I think also I can at least speak to the marketing literature. Um, all of these depend on what's called the network structure. And so, you know, when you think about, you know, the most fundamental thing that people in marketing have been doing for a long time are what are called agent-based models. Think of it as like, almost like put a bunch of molecules in a box. Those molecules interact. There's some transfer rate between one molecule, molecule and the next. But most of these systems make an assumption either of the randomness of connections. And so the minute you have, you know, as you guys know, there's things called star networks. There's all kinds of shapes of networks. That's going to have a tremendous influence on the speed and the shape of this adoption curve. Even if you knew, uh, Adi, even if you knew, you know, what's the probability of someone transferring it to somebody else? And even if you would have to then also know, well, how many people am I going to be in contact with? What's the shape of that distribution look like? And so 
Um, models are great, but there's so many assumptions that would have to go into that. And my question is, since you know this has been for me for six years now on Morton Moneyball, as an effect size guy, where is the biggest effect size going to come from? Like what number do we have to make sure we get the most right to at least make sure we're not off by a magnitude of 10? Like I, I'm not even trying to imagine a confidence interval here, like plus or minus 5%. Let's live in the land of reality here. But I would like to have a confidence interval that isn't off by 2x, 3x, 5x. That'd be nice. When you're talking effect size, are you talking about kind of specific treatments like 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 interventions? Like what's the effect size of like face masks Mask. specifically yeah, yeah. versus like just isolating practices in general? Am I, am I allowed to answer yes? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All of those. Yeah. yeah. I'd like yeah. to know what all of those effect sizes are. And, and also, Shane, you bring up a great point, which is, you know, if, if you were going to be an economist, what would an economist say? Well, an economist would say there's a utility and then there's a loss. And so obviously loss of life, the cost of the healthcare system, these are, are terrible things. But on the other side, you could argue, you know, the damage to the economy also affects welfare of people. People die from hunger, starvation, loss of housing, homelessness. And so, you know, if you were gonna, if you were gonna complicate it as well, you'd really have like a competing risks model, which is, you know, so, you know, it's the, it's the old expression, you can only die once. And so, you know, are you gonna die from this? Or are you gonna die from that? Yeah. And so by doing one type of intervention, I mean, while it yeah. could be a small, it is a big N small P problem, which is I'll make this up. Let's imagine people staying at home, you raise the probability of some other type of uh, comorbidity. By let, even me, let, one me, let me be specific, Eric. I've heard yeah. already cases of children, something when I was a kid, I had an appendicitis. and appendectomies are easily treatable before they rupture. And if you can get the kids into the hospital where they should be to be treated, it's no big deal. What they're seeing is ruptured appendixes are happening because of parents are afraid to go to the hospital with their sick children, and they rightly are so. And so this is exactly a comorbidity that's a consequence of being afraid to come into the hospital. One of the things that Adi said that, that reminds me, this is not a new thought in the last couple of days, but, but it's one of the things that frustrated me the most as I talked with people, as we started trying to get people to take this seriously, a lot of folks said, well, you know, you're not going to get it if you're young. And we knew the probabilities, as Adi says, it's steeply related to age, but there's still a probability on every age group, essentially. And you, well, throw, actually, a few, you throw a few million people at a small probability and you've got some sick people. And people just aren't good um, psychologically with these kinds of probabilities. They want to dismiss things um, once they become kind of small like that. And it's just... It, it, it was really frustrating. Now we've got some high profile examples, which will kind of help offset that bias. But one of the things that struck me also about the younger age groups, I don't know if y'all saw this, but there was a comparison of the distribution of positive tests as a function of age in different geographies. So South Korea being one of them where testing was mandatory, essentially, or random, one of the two. Um, and It's not random. And, you have to have a reason. It's, it's not random in South no, Korea. I, mean, I think Iceland was, low the one that was closest to random. Yeah, Iceland, Iceland is what I've heard is doing Iceland close might be randomized doing testing. Okay, so well, the prevalence at the very least of testing was dramatically higher in South Korea than in some European country they were comparing yep. it to. And in the European country, the, the, the incidence of positive tests was this normal curve, maybe peaking in the 40s or 50s, but just kind of what you'd expect. But in South Korea, there was this major spike on the 20s. So they're testing much more with asymptomatic people, and they're finding that the 20-year-olds are the ones that are far, I mean, literally the mode, the highest age group were the 20s. And it makes sense because they're the most social, essentially. They also felt probably that they were more immune, but they're just so much more social and interactive that they would naturally be the greater carrier. Mm -hmm. And so now you've got this situation where, yes, they're less likely, but they're so much more active that they're carrying it. And so you're just increasing the number of people who are exposed to it. I think the two things also came back to your earlier question of what caught my eye. I think the other one is uh, my son told me this statistic and I, I don't know if I always get sensitivity and specificity mixed up, like which one is the false positive and which that, one's that the false positive. That makes me negative. feel better, Eric. Uh, but you guys, I'm sure can remind me, but what I do, I, my, I've heard something like the false negative rate is something like a third with many of the tests that have been out there. And that to me is an alarming and shocking number. Just to be clear for everybody, given that you actually have the coronavirus, yeah. the probability it says you do is about two thirds. Now, of course, there weren't correct anymore, Eric. I think that was a problem early on. No, I said it was. 
I know they're, they're starting to come up with more, I forget if it's sensitive or specific tests, whichever the two it is. Yeah. Um, and they are, but that, that number, but I've actually, I don't think for any, since I've done a little work in this area, not in epidemiology, but I, I don't know if I've ever heard of a test that has a higher, much higher false negative rate than false positive rate. That's typically not the way these tests are built. Yeah. Well, it's a PCR test. So what they're looking at is for sections of the genetic material. Um, this is a standard device. It's in, in almost every lab in, in our, in, in HUP and in our, in, has these, by the way, which have not been harnessed to, to do the testing. They're still being done by the doctors and we have not uh, let our vast researchers in on this for regulatory reasons, which seems a little strange. Uh, but if you're just looking for, for pieces of, of RNA and and it, the problem has to do with swabbing. So actually getting the, the virus on the swab and making sure you get it in the right part of your mouth. And so when they miss that or your nose, when you miss that, you're not getting any virus, even though you might have it. And so, and that's where the terrible rates have come from. Uh, I think the other part that we should all- It's a sampling, it's a sampling error. That's yep. I think the other part that we shouldn't, uh, since we're all um, progressive thinkers here in our way, we should also mention, I think a real shame of this in my view is that this is, it, it's a regressive disease. And so when i what I mean by that is, you know, it's when I forget who was saying, you know, it's easy for us to do social distancing in the main line, yep. but there are people that can't afford to do social yeah. distancing as much as others. And you, you keep hearing on the news about, you know, people in prison, you know, no one's, you know, no, you know, uh, what, what are you going to do there? And so I think, unfortunately, this is back to Adi's original point again, of, it's a different form of heterogeneity, but there's going to be income heterogeneity and social status heterogeneity that are going to affect people's ability to mitigate the spread of this disease. And that's, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a reality. Derek, yeah. amen, amen. And lots of people have lost their jobs and, and are having a hard time already. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fellas, looking forward a little bit, um, the, the, the biggest question is when we'll have immunization because we're not really out of the woods until we have that widely available. And most estimates I've seen are, you know, disturbingly long time from now. So 12 to 18 months is what people say, even best case. You have some heroic efforts going on. The, the news in the last couple of days was that Bill Gates is going to fund seven different factories to um, to manufacture this uh, possibilities for immunization, knowing that at best maybe two of them will actually bear out. And so he's going to, you know, it's going to cost two or three times what it should because we don't know which one right now is going to bear out. I'm curious what your thoughts on the big question is that's, th those are schedules that are given kind of historical. Yeah. Programs and historical timetables. It, are we able to accelerate with 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 the demand, with so many people jumping in, with industries and experts jumping in that haven't been in before? Do you think we'll still see that long a window, or do you think something will change? Yeah, it's, I mean that's a, a fascinating question. Like, how much of that kind of like twelve day, like these historical norms were driven by actual like lack of resources, where you know now the entire planet's resources are being thrown at this thing. Um, versus just kind of there is an inherent sort of like, you know, especially with something that is kind of a novel, like it's, you know, the flu vaccines that they produce every year, I have been kind of told like that, that is easier because they kind of can build off of what they already have. They have kind of a backbone essentially of a vaccine already for flu that they can kind of model and, 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 and use for the yearly vaccines. And we don't kind of have that backbone yet for this, but I am that that's, a great question like you know i mean the entire world or the entire scientific world is kind of focused on this one thing you'd kind of think we could speed some aspects of this up but i don't know how much of it is and how much of it's going to be a regulatory slowdown and what our societal answer will be to that i think one of the reasons why i'm not expecting it to go faster than 12 months unless unless the couple of them were that were already almost at production level that were announced almost right away which are now in testing turn out to be effective and that's just a gamble but if if the problem is the safety and you just you have to test it on volunteers on animals first then on vo human volunteers that takes time to see whether it actually isn't going to kill you nobody wants a, the virus to cause more problems than the, the i mean the the, the the solution to cause more more problems than the problem so that's going to take time and then you got to ramp it up then it, there's you know phase one phase two phase three testing maybe that's some of that regulatory stuff can, can crunch well, right because I, I mean i kind of i kind of imagine like speaking back to our head genady like every country is going to be working on this yep. what if there's a country um yeah. 
that like comes up with something that does not have that same regulatory mechanisms. They come up with something quick and dirty that does not necessarily, their process does not match, match, uh, match FDA's current standards for safety. But all of a sudden this thing is out there as a quote unquote vaccine. There's going to be a lot of societal discussion about whether or not like, you know, are we, are we going to wait the extra six months if that's out there <laughs> for something to pass our safety musters? Or are we going to actually kind of maybe I think it's, hunt I think on it's the our safety? Term, our turn to, to explain the difference between type one and type two error. Because this is, this is the concepts that are the backbone of statistical analysis. And historically, we've essentially decided before we start, type one error has to be controlled. You gotta, you gotta make sure that a, a false result isn't put out there at a very low threshold, whether it's 0.01 or 0.05 or whatever you do, type one error has gotta be controlled. And then we just try to be as maximally powerful as we can, meaning type Adi, two error has to be as small as possible. You said false, but you meant to say false positive, right? Type one is so, a false positive? Uh, yes, type one is a false positive. We want to make sure false positives are as small as possible. And, and type two is, is, a, is essentially false negative, missing something good. Historically, the FDA, driven by us, I'm going to say this is, a, this is Fisher, this is a statistical mindset, created this foundation whereby type one errors are controlled, and then we try to do as best as we can on type two. Does, doesn't an epidemic sound like the kind of place where you want to minimize the false negatives, the type twos? Yes, it is. And in fact, this yeah. is being played out on a national stage because our, our president doesn't believe in type one errors. He only believes in type two errors. So if you're following his, the, the, the fight, which is happening, and it's a worthwhile fight to, to be happening, he somehow thinks, okay, let's just get something out there, particularly the, 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 the treatment, the HCQ, the hydrochlorine quinine treatment possibility. He's been throwing that out without really much data that this, is, this could be a game changer. Emphasis on the word game changer if you're trump if you're if you're his his advisors it's could <laughs> and problem, well i think i think part of the problem that makes it less that makes it even more difficult to study is that if you have something that turns out to be a false positive and then all of a sudden you lift restrictions that are yep. slowing down the curve then all of a sudden you could be in worse shape much worse shape than you were before so it's not even just a question of the false positive rate in this mm -hmm. case it's what are then the government and and locality restrictions that get lifted and what's the impact of that but i agree with you completely adi this and, and glad Cade brought this up this really is the foundation of what statistics is built on type one versus type two error so we're going to this stuff is going to come back into the conversation as we change gears into sports, because it's going to be hard to talk about sports without making some kind of forecast about when we'll be able to do them again, watch them again, gather for them. That in turn is going to depend on some of the stuff we're going to talk about, but we'll pick that up after the break. Well, we'll step away here for a quick couple of minutes and be back. Wharton Moneyball. There's something called the large deviation distribution. The basic idea is that you want to ask yourself what causes unusually unlikely events and how does that happen and what's the distribution on the individual components that make it up. And basically there's two alternatives. Either one unbelievably unlucky thing happens or lots and lots of little things. And it turns out in the theory of large deviations that it's the latter. Lots and lots of little things that break your way create the large deviation. Wharton Moneyball. Wednesdays, 8 a.m. East on Business you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. All right, we're back for the second half of this special edition of Wharton Moneyball, a virtual edition. This is Cade Massey hosting from the boonies of Central Texas with the whole crew on here. These guys are all in Philadelphia still. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Great to have you. Great to be together with you guys. First time in a while, guys. It's really, it's really been too long. Um, we do think we're going to, figure out a way to do this on a virtual basis going forward. We're open to your suggestions on format, timing, everything else. We're giving you a smaller dose this time, an hour. We weren't sure whether you wanted a full two-hour version, so we're starting out with a one-hour version. We've done the first half hour mostly on the coronavirus. The second half, we're going to transition to a little bit more sports. In transition, guys, let's first talk about the impact of the coronavirus and how long we think it's going to last. I mean, one simple question is, do you think we're going to play football in the fall? Yes. Trump certainly wants us to. <laughs> I think we, I, I think we will. I think we will play football in the fall. I mean, I just watched. Um, I, whether we play football in front of live audiences is uh, different. That's that I'm less confident about. But I just, I just watched the one of the premier uh, sporting events of the year, WrestleMania, just happened over this past weekend, and it still <laughs> did happen. They still did a WrestleMania event, 
but it was filmed in an arena with no studio, with no audience. Okay. Um, and obviously a minimal amount of personnel. I guess the argument against football is that even the minimal amount of personnel to put on the NFL is, is a substantial number of in-person people, you know, in-person. Right, kind right. Of, so I don't know. It would be more difficult, but I, I, th- I think they will end up, I think the NFL season gets played. Uh, it may be at least to start in empty stadiums. Adi. I would love to, 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 to uh, get basketball going in uh, state in fanless stadiums soon. I would love to see, these are young guys. There's not many, there's not, it's not their teams are small. They don't need the entourages that usually come with them. We can pair those down, get them in hotels all around one arena maybe the eight teams in each league in two different spots, keep them there for a month, give them a, a week to quarantine and get these games going. That's what I want to see happening. Yeah, Adi, do you, do you, I think Adi do you care up. whether it's, do you care whether that's professional or college or like some high school, you just want some basketball play. I want professional. I want our eight. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think Adi is probably league. speaking. I mean, I assume you're speaking and the, it would, it's presumably the same logic would apply to the NHL is like, you know, it'd be nice to close off these seasons. Right. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely. right on the cusp of the playoffs with both and well, you could do something like that. Football. I mean, I don't think you could, you couldn't do an entire football season, right. Where these oh. players I think were cloistered away, but you could do, potentially some kind of tournament essentially that would be kind of a maybe even okay. shortened version of the playoffs are y'all just fantasizing or is there some possibility that this will actually happen oh i think i let me i, I think god is i think there's definitely a possibility that the season could start with games where there are no fans i think that's definitely possible i think it's definitely possible that they could you know similar to what training camp happens you know if you think about training camp the teams are you know in Eagles case, they're in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. Now, they're there. They're there together. They're there in dorms. I think it's not impossible to believe you could have multiple teams playing at a small number of stadiums, like everyone could be grouped into four stadiums, like Adi suggested. No, I I don't think that's impossible at all. I think it's actually, I, I could easily see that's the way things started. Let me, let me, the reason why we're not doing it now is because it's plain irresponsible to do it now. Part of the, the message of the NBA is to show that they are acting like everybody else. Steph Curry's in his backyard, just as I am, putting up his own hoop, trying to practice alone. And also, we're also trying to make sure that our hospitals aren't overwhelmed. Give ourselves three to four weeks, and we're going to be beyond all the surges. We'll know exactly what we can accommodate and what we can't. And we, we can pull this off without being irresponsible. To I mean, be large. there is an assumption there that we kind of are beyond the surges kind of all over this country, right? Which is not yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely. If that turns out to be wrong, that's, that's different. Right. right. Well, there's, there's a pretty sobering article by Jeff Passan at the top of ESPN right now on South Korea and their attempts to restart baseball. And, you know, this is obviously kind of the, the gold standard for how you test and, and keep the curve down. And yet they're having trouble. They're doing it. They're trying to do it. They're playing some interest squad scrimmages right now, but they've got these super strict testing regimens where if one person in the organization comes down positive, everyone's kind of quarantined again and they're put away and they make sure everything's okay. And then they got to wait. And so the trouble is, I mean, we're, we're, we're the statisticians, right? If you've got a, if you've got an organ, say how, what's the minimum number of people that you need in an organization to make this thing work, it's going to be, I don't know, 30 or 40 or something. And now you're going to ask, what's the probability that nobody out of 30 and 40 dice rolls are going to come down sick at some point. The odds are against you. Yeah. Uh, if we were to get better with testing, like if the tests were to get quicker, and yes. and better we could do this almost you could imagine daily. something on a more daily kind of basis right but i want to point out south korea is trying to do it with baseball team is 25 you need your, your you need some staff you're looking at minimum 40 people on each in each organization basketball you can get away with half that easily yeah. Yeah. and and that means the probability of someone getting exposed and, and right. you down as well well you know the sport that i'm surprised isn't almost I mean, really is already doing this and i think maybe the first sport to come back will be golf because mm-hmm. golf you just yep. trot some guys out there and put you know a few cameramen and you're away right you just don't need the same hordes of people i, I think the challenge though i think the challenge is what adi brought up earlier it's not it, it is part of the perception but i've always said one of the big challenges in life because life doesn't live in binary things most of the time one zero it lives a lot of things live in the gray zone is so where do you draw the line so you say, okay, well, basketball can resume. Okay, maybe so. 
then what about uh, college sports? Oh, well, if college sports can, then what about college classes? Oh, well, college classes can, then what about opening up restaurants? And then, so the problem is, if you look at, if you look at the risks on a continuum basis, and you start to, you know, you, somebody, maybe it's the NFL or the NBA or whoever, in conjunction with the government, decides to draw the line here, you can easily imagine the line creeping upwards yep. in a way that is bad for the spread of this disease. So it is partly what I agree from Adi's point of view, that part of it is brand perception. There's no doubt about it. But part of it is also then where do you draw the line? And that's a tough decision. I just think we could all use a little bit of entertainment. And, and yeah, could, and, I, and, and I think you could maybe mitigate that, like in the NBA context, if they're playing to empty arenas, it'll be kind of clear that it's not like, it's not like they're back to business as usual or anything like that. It'll well, be, you know, I, and I think it, any sport that does kind of, you know, lead the way back is going to be a very different kind of sport um, for a little while. Well, here's a nice transition. So why does it have to, it's staying in the same basic area, but it's based on what Kate said. Why does it have to be live sports? So let me give you an example of some sporting events I've watched since we don't have live sports. So I was flipping around the channels and I was watching the, I've never seen this game before, game seven of the NBA finals in 1970, Knicks versus Lakers. So, you know, on one team is Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, Dave DeBusher, Bill Bradley, all Hall of Famers. On the other team, there's Wilt Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson. And I'm watching this game and I'm thinking, this is like two Hall of Fame squads playing against each other. Um, so I watched that. I watched the Lakers Celtics 2010 NBA Finals, I, the game seven. I watched the end when the Celtics won the game uh, 2008 when they beat the Lakers in the finals. I watched the Brett Favre's last game against when he was with the Vikings playing against the Packers in Lambeau Field. I have to admit, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. <laughs> no, and credit ESPN, credit ESPN for, I mean, you know, they've got like three or four 24-hour sp sports channels and clearly a lack of material right now. Credit them for putting a lot of this older stuff on kind of to help, you know, I mean, you know, the, the weekend after Tom Brady uh, signed uh, away from the Patriots, they had a whole, like, there was like eight hours of Tom Brady games. All six Super Bowls were re- I mean, that's probably not something everybody would tune into, but I it took eight hours out of my life. That was very, very enjoyable. <laughs> hey, boy, so you can already see how it's going to go on uh, Wharton Moneyball for the rest of the season. Shane calls it leaving the Patriots. I call it joining the Buccaneers. You see, no, and I mean, you know, how you look at it. Oh, good grief. <laughs> and I am, I am, I am, I am still heartbroken. Uh, I, it's going to be, I'm going to have a viscerally negative reaction to seeing that guy in anybody else's uniform. That said, if he had to go somewhere, Tampa Bay is pretty intriguing. It'll, it'll be fun to cheer. I have a, an official NFC team now. Shane, what's your forecast for how Brady will perform this, when, when we next see him, if it's not too Oh, that, it's so intriguing. I think I'm, I'm predicting uh, – I, 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 my projection would be something like a 9-7 and seven type season. I think, he, I think he'll be good, and I think he's going to have a lot of good targets. But, I mean, I think Brady is – Probably even before coronavirus, Brady was probably, I think, underestimating how much transitioning to a new offensive system. I mean, yeah. he's been in the same system with the same totally. great people for totally. decades. And, and, we, and now we, he's able to has to transition in a way where he can't actually hang. I mean, if the NFL season happens, it's probably going to be with a very truncated training camp and not a lot of time to kind of, like this is not the ideal kind of summer, early fall to be transitioning into a new system. Yeah. So if you, if you get, it's a great point. If you, if you had to, what's your, what's your prediction of what, what percentile he'll be relative to other starting quarterbacks in the NFL, according to some good statistic. Do you like QBR by the way? Kay, do you like QBR as a reasonable sure. one? I mean, okay. Well, let me just tell you, by the way, I know you guys know this. I think I yeah. said it before in Morton Moneyball. Everybody does know that Jameis Winston and Tom Brady had exactly the same QBR last season. I just want to say exactly the same QBR. Right. Not like one was 52. Coming and the other to, was for, coming to mean, it for a very like, different place. Within like 0.1 or 0.2, I'm talking about exactly the same QBR. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's right. That's right. That's uh, this has been worth it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, and I, I, it will be, I, I think you'll, I think you'll be top, top 10, you know, top uh, quartile still probably. Um, so, Eric, get on the receiving end of this, how how glorious is it? I mean, or do you feel 
like, uh, you know, how much more good are we really going to get out of it? Where are you? What was your reaction to getting him? I think since I went to a lot of games last year and certainly watched all the games, um, I'm projecting even if they play the same as last year, but instead of throwing 30 touchdowns, Brady throws 10 to 12 uh, uh, interceptions. Brady throws 10 to 12 interceptions, which tends to be his norm, you know, 30 touchdowns, 10 or 12 interceptions. I think it's worth at least two to three more wins for the Bucs just there. There were so many games last season where the Buccaneers were down 7-0, 14-0 before really the offense really came on the field or defense did. Um, uh, Jameis Winston gave away so many games. I'm talking about games where he had five-plus turnovers with interceptions plus um, fumbles and stuff. Tom Brady is not turning the ball over six or seven times in a football game. It's just not going to happen. Um, I, I think the Buccaneers are, if they play as well as last season, I would say they're, I think the worst case scenario is what Shane said. I think they're at least a nine and seven team, but I'm also realistic. I'm not expecting 13 and three, 12 and four. That would be surprising. They're also in an, in my view, an extraordinarily tough division. Um, you know, the New Orleans Saints are still a very big dog and they're a very, very accomplished team. I think the Falcons started playing extremely well at the end of the season. I don't know what happened to them at the beginning of the season. The Panthers, it's just hard to know. I mean, the Panthers, but I mean, they're not in an easy division. And uh, if you actually look at the Buccaneers games outside of the division, it's brutally difficult this year. They have a very, very difficult schedule. So do you, do you, yes, do you, would you guys excited. put, would you guys put a higher probability on the Patriots making the playoffs next year or the Buccaneers? Well, the, I, here's what I would say. The good news for both those teams is that they've added a playoff team. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's true. Um, there's going to be seven in each conference and not six. Um, so I would say that I would put a higher probability on the Patriots making the playoffs, um, partly because I don't actually think the AFC East is still that good. That's number one. <laughs> um, number two, um, I, we have some data. I wish we had more. I wish, definitely wish we had more updated with the Patriots without Tom Brady. I wish we had a couple, 10 more seasons of it without him. But we have, you know, I don't know. Um, we all remember the Matt Castle 11 and yeah, 5 season. Yeah. And I understand. And, and we remember Garoppolo playing. And we thought Garoppolo was the next coming of Tom Brady. And then, of course, we now see that Garoppolo's fine. He's a, you can win the Super Bowl with Garoppolo. You almost did. But he's not Tom Brady. Yeah. Um, I think we may find um, the Patriots at 11 and five again by the end of the season. I think you have the greatest coach in the history of football and it's not close. <laughs> Who is a quarterback for the Patriots? And doesn't that matter quite a bit? Hard for me to pick the Patriots. Yeah, no, and I mean like my, you know, it's it, well, right. It's this guy, Jared Stidham, who um, they drafted. <laughs> Stidham, yeah. Uh, that they drafted, I, I guess, last year, two years ago. Um, and has only really obviously seen the field in either ex uh, exhibition or like, you know, kind of garbage time type of scenarios. Um, and so I think people are kind of, there isn't much data on him. And so people are mostly imputing kind of, you know, kind of average expectations. I don't given. Know, Shane, suppose I told you, suppose I told you that starting the first game of the season, the quarterback for the Patriots is Cam Newton. Oh, that would be very exciting. Well, it can be. It can be Could right be. now. Could be. I mean, uh, I, mean the, I think Kraft the Cambridge and Jonathan Kraft decide to write a check. Cam Newton, except for the coronavirus, Cam Newton will be in New England tomorrow. Yeah, no, I mean, and I'm, I'm cheering for that. I mean, there's cap. I, I don't think they necessarily have the salary cap for that even. With, But, well, yeah, no, I mean, I would, I would be very excited for Cam Newton for a couple of years. That would be great. Well, hey. another way they could, they could do it, any team. We can do it is through the draft. We've got the draft coming up. This is one sporting event we know is going to happen. Any yeah. thoughts on what impact will be? There, the, the regulation from the league office is that you, not only can't you use the team buildings, but now they're going to say you, you have to be alone at your house, essentially. There's some kind of restriction. You can't just bring your normal crew of nine or ten guys to the yeah. GM's house. So what's the impact going to be, if anything, on the draft? Less of a, uh, of a spectacle, but I think the exact same thing is going to happen. Well, the exact same thing in what sense? You're going to go, we're going to have a draft and they're going to go around and. Well, but I, I guess, I guess because the, like uh, one intriguing thing I thought about is, is could this, you know, in this kind of like, you know, to the extent that there's a fight between, you know, the analytics guys and the scouting guys, 
like, mm-hmm. at, you know, real time added into, into a draft decision, does having it all be kind of decentralized where the sca- – I mean, I could imagine a, a, a narrative where because, this, you know, you can't have your 20 scouts there yelling at you to draft this certain guy that maybe you're going to be going a little bit more towards what's, you know, the analyst said like to you like a couple days in an email ago or something like that. Well, I thought, Shane, you were going to go in another direction, which is also, you know, um, there weren't the pro days and the eye test yeah. and the, you know – all of a sudden, the, you know, the availability of the eye test data is lower. And now all of a sudden, people have to look at the actual data, you know, the actual data from their performance. Yeah. Their, you know, if you whatever predictive power you want to put in the combine data for those people that actually did anything. Um, I, that's where I, but I agree with you. There, there may be less um, uh, cooks in the kitchen when it actually comes down to that five or ten minute interval and someone's picking. Yeah. How long is the interval? Is it 10 minutes, five minutes? I think it's 10 minutes in the first round, as I remember. Yeah. But also the other part, well, I, I, thought, I, I mean, I given thought, the lack of everything else going off, they could really just stretch this out like this whole week where we just kind of watch this thing slowly like happen <laughs> over the internet, right? I, I, I thought it came a lot of time. But speaking of the time, the time constraints and the distributed nature of the teams, you got to believe that it's going to, it's going to privilege the better organized teams. And yeah. the more experienced, the guys who have worked together longer, the guys who have done this before. You, yeah, you, and just, I mean, it's just I such get, a different environment. And going into the season, like as well, like I mean, both for the draft and whatever, like I, I feel like there's going to be this weird bias against organizations that have made kind of either coaching or GM like organizational changes mm-hmm. this particular off season because you're just going to have a lot less kind of time to 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 connect, connect and get like you know like your systems in, in order, right? Right. Like, like this, again, like, you know, I mean, this would be, you know, if you're a rookie quarterback um, or something like that, joining a team, a team where they already have like an offensive coordinator that, and coach that I, I have been meshing for a few years in real time, that's got to be that much more advantageous than like, uh, if you are an offensive coordinator joining a team now, it's got to be that much harder to kind of get up to speed. I thought, Kate, you were going to bring up the fact that um, are people going to still violate the 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 research that you did as when you were you know a number of years ago on you know how many teams are going to move up in the draft as you know the big story right now is the Dolphins who traded away their whole team to draft a bunch of number one picks at least the rumors out there is they want Tua Tagliavoa and so they're going to move up from five to two by giving up the five the 16 a couple of other first rounders you know so you know are we going to see this again this overvaluing of the really top end of the draft and every evidence we have suggests that someone is going to trade a lot to try to draft Tua after the, you know, after the Bengals draft Joe Burrow, then it's all hands on deck on picks two through four. Cause if two is still alive at number five, when the dolphins pick, we know it. And so a bunch of teams are thinking they have to jump the dolphins or the dolphins themselves. And we remember just a few years ago, how much the, uh, the bears traded to go from three to two to draft Mitch Trubisky, how much they had to give up. Yeah. So I, I think we're going to see that again. So I think that is the interesting question. Is what's the impact going to be on, on trades mostly? Because, you know, we're going to have the draft. Guys will come off the board. But how much activity are we going to have on, on trades? And on the one hand, you've got less information. They weren't able to do the, some of the visits they normally do. They weren't able to do some of the character interviews they normally do. On the other hand, the reports that I'm seeing are that a lot of these guys are watching more tape than they've ever been able to watch. The GMs usually they're distracted and now they're sitting at home just crushing these videos on the players. And so in some sense, they have more information than they've had in the past. The other dynamic is that these guys are going to be more alone. They're usually surrounded by, it varies by club, but they've got a bunch of guys in the room and you have a decision maker, but you've got support and, and, and kibitzers right there next to you. And they're, they're just not going to have them that way now. Now, what is the impact of that going to be? Are they going to feel emboldened? because they're on their own and they can just act more unilaterally or are they going to be more reticent because they don't, they don't feel the strength of the people around them. I, I don't know the answer to this, but I think it's going to be fascinating to see. One thing that I do think is true is that it's going to be harder for teams to make these decisions and to coordinate all that has to happen. The phone calls, the valuing, the trade, the coming up with alternative packages. That's just a harder process when everybody's in different places. And if, if nothing else, I would expect that to drive trades down a little bit. So, Cade, this is your, in some ways, your expertise. What kind of data would we be able to bring after the fact to learn about this? Or you have to be 
Will there have to be people who talk about it on the inside? I mean, is there any way we can figure out what'll change or not change? Is there any observable or is it you have to be there with them? Well, the observables are the, just a number of trades. Of course, it's relatively small sample and highly volatile. And so it'd be tough to draw strong inferences from it. But you'll see volume. You'll see volume of trades. Um, and we'll, we'll be able to say something. But certainly after the fact, we'll know there'll be stories of clubs that just weren't able to pull it together in time. They run out of the clock or they weren't comfortable doing it because they couldn't communicate or whatever. Um, and again, I don't know because there are other factors that could push in other directions. But um, I, think, I think that part of it's really interesting. One other thing I know there's quite a bit of research on that. As a matter of fact, uh, now a colleague of Cage and OID, uh, Duncan Watts, actually does, is doing a lot of study right now about group decision-making in virtual environments. And so I'm sure um, there's a fair amount of research about, so now you're trying to make a group decision on an individual, but people aren't necessarily physically proximate. Um, to me, I know that's what you're asking about, and what, yeah. what can we collect about this, not with regard to the NFL draft, but in general, this is a very active area of research study right now, and um, you're right, in theory, I wish we got a lot more data on this, because it would be very interesting. It's kind of like, well, how do you, I mean, you being both a musician and someone with, you know, training, as you know, you know, people have studied what happens when you interview people for the opera when you close the curtain so you can't see the person's body or something like that. I mean, people are very interested in decision making when you, in theory, remove certain kinds of biases. And this may be an opportunity to remove certain kinds of biases in decision making. The other thing that I'm very interested in, too, in sort of, sort of the business of making decisions is we spend an enormous amount of time traveling and getting to be in places where we're not, so we're not remote. And that, and we spend a lot of time traveling. I'm wondering whether this new Zoom world that we're in, or whether it's blue jeans or hangouts, or will make a transformation in society and how we value the experience of being together. Um, I certainly value the experience of being together with you guys every week, but might, we might find that we, that the show itself is actually great um, remotely and that and that and if this is multiplicative in lots of different areas it's an enormous gain of efficiency as, as soon as there isn't a, a commensurate loss well as long as there's more flexibility it should yep. be you know efficiency gains without the losses you know um, as long as there is that flexibility to do it either way and we're going to develop more facility with doing it this virtual way yeah, I was going to comment that the last, I don't know if it's the last, but the other thing that caught my eye, there was kind of a sporting thing that happened this last week, which was, of course, the NBA Hall of Fame class. And, you know, um, a lot of people consider this, and I'll just give you the data in just a second, one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, Hall of Fame class of all time. Uh, obviously, Kobe Bryant went into the Hall of Fame. Tim Duncan, Kevin Garnett went into the Hall of Fame. Um, people have actually, there's a, a computation that people have done either, you know, wins above replacement or number of championships created, et cetera. Um, you know, the Hall of Fame class that's close to this, I'll just tell you guys some pretty impressive ones as well. Um, the 2009 uh, Hall of Fame class was Michael Jordan. Uh, I can stop there. Yeah, but it did, there. Also have, it did also have David Robinson and John Stockton. Uh, that's yeah. not so bad. Mm -hmm. um, 1980s Hall of Fame class was Oscar Robertson, uh, Jerry Lucas and uh, West, Jerry West. That's not too bad. Um, 2018, Allen Iverson, Maurice Cheeks, Grant Hill, Jason Kidd, and Steve Nash. Not too bad at all. Um, so there's been, or sorry, it was Ray Allen, not Allen Iverson, Ray Allen. But there's been some tremendous, you know, tremendous Hall of Fame classes. By statistics I've looked at, they've said that the Jordan Robinson Stockton is number one and that Kobe Bryant, Tim Duncan, Garnett is number two. I must admit my favorite of all time is the 1987 uh, class, which was uh, Rick Barry, Pete Maravich, and Walt Frazier. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't say it was the best. It was just my favorite of all time. <laughs> Eric, hold on. You're, not, you're the same age as the rest of us. Why would that be your favorite class? My memories of that class are, one, Rick Barry shot granny-style free throws. Pete Maravich never saw enough of him, died too soon. Well, Frazier was just before our time in many ways, right? Or is it because, is he, was he a Nick and you're a Nick? Is that where it comes from? Yeah, so I was a Nick fan growing up. I mean, he did win a championship in 73, which I remember quite well. I don't remember the 70 championship. I was a little, 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 little kid. Um, so I don't remember it well. But also, Walt Frazier was always a big star in New York, you know, even after. Because okay. he's been the announcer for the Knicks for the last, as I think, since he retired. So he's been that. Um, Pete Maravich, people always forget. You're right. We never saw enough of him in the pros. 
Uh, he averaged 44 points a game in college, still to this day, the greatest score in the history of college uh, basketball. Right. Um, and Rick Barry was just, you know, he was one of the guys that kind of, um, besides underhanded free throws, you know, he was one of those guys that um, had, he, had he played primarily an era of three-point shooting, um, you know, the guy was just an amazing shooter. Right. And so it was just a fun group of people. And, and Walt Frazier was known as a guy with great ball handling skills, great leadership skills. And, you know, I told you I watched the 1970 um, uh, NBA Finals Game 7. Walt Frazier had 37 points and 21 assists in that nice. game. So that's not so bad. Yeah, I need to watch a Walt Frazier uh, 30 for 30. That's, that's what I need. One thing I would say about this class is that the interesting contrast between Tim Duncan and Kobe Bryant. I mean, it's one of the all-time good guys against one of the more controversial guys. In terms of guys who have a lot of championships and were really the leaders of their teams for those championships, they're very different personalities. And they're and, and both they, with five championships, interestingly. They both people always forget Tim Duncan's won five. People always oh, yeah. think that, you know, oh wow, Kobe's won so much more. No, the the Spurs won the same number of titles as the Lakers in those years. Tim Duncan won five, Kobe won five. Um, and I should also mention, by the way, this is no, just the opposite of disrespect. In my view, one of the greatest women players of all time, Tamika Catchings, also went into the Hall of Fame. And um, for somebody that's followed the WNBA for a while, um, she was literally, I mean, by almost every measure, certainly one of the top two or three women ever to play the game. We can debate whether that adds to the class in a meaningful way or not. To me, it does. Um, but I agree with you. Bryant and Duncan could not have been more different. Yeah, it's the consummate uh, team player versus the consummate me first. What did he tell? Famously tell somebody? He's like, there's no I in T, but there's no I in team, but there is an M-E. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, fellas, ball. That has been the first uh, virtual edition of Wharton Moneyball. We are very likely to do some more of these. Been one hour here. The whole crew was here for almost all of it. Shane Jensen slipped away a little bit early, but Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, both calling in from... Uh, Philadelphia and Cade Massey here in Central Texas. Very happy to be with you guys. We'll look forward to another round of it. And listeners, again, if you have any comments, suggestions, any aspect of it, content, program, timing, technical, let us know. This is the first time out, and we might be doing this for a while, so we're all ears. We will talk to you down the road between now and then. Well, I can't say that anymore, can I? Enjoy your recorded historical sports. Wharton Moneyball. Do these athletic behemoths with muscles on top of muscles more likely to have injuries? The reason why the Brewers are willing to invest in Yelich is because his body type, they do not believe, is the kind that will break down. And so we know this because he was on the swimsuit edition of Sports <laughs> Illustrated without any clothes. Well, well, you knew this. I just learned this. <laughs> See, I told you I learned stuff on the show. I just learned that. Wharton Moneyball, Wednesdays, 8 a.m.